0: Christ is risen. We are moving into the, the three Cappadocian fathers. Before we get into that, any follow up thoughts, questions from last time? We had talked about who was that? Eusebius, Hilary, and one more. But Cap- anything on the follow up from last time or other questions? and seeing none. The Cappadocian fathers, so we have these three guys, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil the Great, those are the three that we're going to talk about. In that order, they, they all, they're living at the same time, they know each other, two of them are brothers, the other's a friend of both of them, I believe. Uh, they sometimes get the nickname, Gregory of Nazianzus is the orator, he's the, known for his preaching, Gregory of Nyssa is sometimes called the thinker, And Basel the Great, the what do they call him, the man of action, more of a doer. Um, He has uh, the reputation for being a more uh, uh, aggressive or or, uh, kind of in your face. Is Basel. So we're going to learn about them, Cappadocian Fathers. They're called that because they come from the region called Cappadocia. Um, When you on on. Pentecost, when we hear the list in Acts 2, these list of all these people that were in Jerusalem, uh, Greeks from Cappadocia Pontus in Asia, I think Cappadocia is mentioned there. These are regions, Amphilia, uh, of Asia Minor. Um, so this area, this region, um, you recognize like Galatia, like the Galatians, like the, the book of the Bible, the letter to the Galatians, the churches in this, this region. Uh, so they're they're all from that. So they and they are contemporaries. called the Cappadocian Fathers. So the first is Gregory of Nazianzus. I'll just give you a little bit of uh, uh, background on him, uh, but we want to spend most time in, in some of the things that we have written from him. Uh, he. So he studied rhetoric and philosophy in Nazianzus, so at first he st- studies at home, and then he goes to Caesarea, to Alexandria, to Athens, which is quite a quite a traveling, going off to, to school, learning, um, but he comes back, his father is the uh, bishop, a pastor in Nazianzus, uh, he converts to Christianity later in life, um, but he is uh, the pastor, and so... And his father kind of talks him into serving as, as first a presbyter, which is the presbyter sort of like a, a well, that's it's the pastor um, underneath a bishop. Uh, he's So he serves under his father initially to help with some of the things in, in that in that area. Um, then he, he, he goes away, the, the kind of story goes with, with Gregory is he's not, He's not sure he wants to do this work um, he uh, there 's a story that once he was uh, on his way to Athens one time his ship encountered a violent storm, and the terrified Gregory prayed to Christ that if he would deliver him, he would dedicate his life to his service Does that sound? so he 's in a storm in this case a ship and he, and he prays you could save my life i 'll dedicate my life Does that sound familiar at all to you Someone else who in a storm now. In that case, what's this other story? Thinking of Luther, perhaps, when, he, when he's in the storm on his way back to, to school in Erfurt. and he, But in that case, he prays to, uh, who was it, St. Anne, and praying that if, if he would survive, then he would become a monk. Um, similar sort of story, but you see, he didn't intend to do this, but he uh, was sort of compelled. Uh, he serves then in a, a, well, let's read, before we get to Sasama, because we've got a quote about Sassama. Um But on the sheet, the first quote, it's just a simple little saying that he had. Uh, as a fish cannot swim without water, and as a bird cannot fly without air, so a Christian cannot advance a single step without Christ. I think that's, that we would think of our relationship with, with Christ as a fish thinks about water. We would be so immersed constantly living in Christ uh, and as a bird without air. So, like, a Christian isn't a Christian without Christ. (laughs) Um, And being connected to Him. Um, And then this next, this longer one, uh, it's from a a thing called In Defense of His Flight. Um, He wants out of of being a, a pastor and later on he's a bishop. Um, but he's, what he 's writing about is some of the difficulties of caring for for souls, so he starts off talking about healers of our bodies will have their labors and vigils and cares, and will reap a harvest of pain for themselves from the distresses of others, as one of their wise men said and I think we recognize that those who you 've seen that people who care like doctors and nurses and people uh, dealing with people in, in times of trauma and, and things like that Pain, they reap a harvest of pain for themselves from the distresses of others. There's some amount of when, when people who care for other people, they end up taking some of that upon themselves um, to, the, to the point where it can really kind of um, harm a person if they, if they aren't able to handle that and they don't have ways of, of, of dealing with that. So he says if that's, that's true of the, the healers of our bodies... Then he says, "But we, upon whose efforts is staked the salvation of the souls, what a struggle ought to be ours ought ours to be, and how great skill do we need to treat or get men treated properly and to change their life uh, for for men and women, young and old, rich and poor, the sanguine, which is like the hopeful, and the despondent, the sick and those who are well, the rulers and the ruled, the wise and the ignorant, cowardly and courageous." The wrathful and the meek, the successful and the failing do not require the same instruction and encouragement. <laughs> so you've got all these different people in very they've got and they're all opposites. You know? You've got people who are you know, old and poor, young and old, rich and poor, you know, people who are sick and people who are well, people who are rulers and people who are ruled, and you've got to treat them all. But it's just they don't need the same medicine. Um, it'd be great if you could. Um, then that as then the same medicine and the same food are not administered to men, but a difference is made according to their degree of health or infirmity. So also our sows treated with varying instructions and guidance. Some are led best by teaching, others by example. Some need the spur, others the curb. They all need something. Sometimes you need to kick them. Sometimes you need to kind of coax them. I'm talking about animals or something like that. Sometimes you know, different. Different needs. Uh, some are benefited by praise. That's kind of what it's going to do with these next prayer rests. There's all this all over the map. Some are benefited by praise. Others by criticism. Being both, <laughs> both being applied at the right time. <laughs> so sometimes someone needs criticism. Sometimes they need praise. Um, of course, you could think of this uh, very similar in like, dealing with children, probably, too. Right? Um, every one of them is different. So how do you do They Do they need encouragement or do they need to get yelled at? <laughs> what are they going to respond to? Um, some, if uh, applied at the wrong time or in an unreasonable way, the application does harm to them. Some are set right by encouragement, others by rebuke. Some when taken to task in public, others when privately corrected. Some tend to disregard private admonitions, but are recalled to their senses by the condemnation of a number of people, while others who would grow reckless under reproof, openly given, accept openly given, rebuke when it is in secret, and yield obedience in return for sympathy. So, there's all, these different, there's all these different situations. How do you know? Upon some, it's needful to keep watch, even in the minutest details, because if, if they think they are unperceived, as they would contrive to be, they are puffed up with the idea of their own cleverness. Of others, it's better to take no notice, but seeing not to see, hearing not to hear them, according to the proverb, that we may not drive them to despair under the depressing influence of repeated reproofs, and to at last to utter recklessness when they have lost the sense of self respect, the source of persuasiveness or the medicine of persuasion. Uh, you know, so sometimes you need to keep an eye on people and to like, watch them closely. Sometimes It's best to just ignore them. Or not ignore, but you know, leave them alone. Because uh, if you were to stay on them, that would be hard on them. In some cases, we must even be angry without feeling angry. Uh, treat them with disdain we do not actually feel. Um, that's, a, that's very... To, to be angry without... Uh, be angry without even feeling angry... Um, you know, you you know, it's like if a, if a teacher, if a teacher loses his temper, generally he loses control. You know, he's also lost control. Like he's, but sometimes to express anger without feeling it, you know, like, I don't know, I suppose like a, a, a teacher or some of the other parent, sometimes would raise a voice that they're not really out of control. But they just need to be loud so that they're heard, or something like that that could be. Uh, even in some cases, we must e- I said that oh no. in some cases we must even be angry without feeling angry, um, treat them with disdain we do not actually feel, or manifest despair, though we do not really despair of them, according to the needs of their nature. Others, again, we must treat with great fairness and gentleness, helping them readily to conceive a hope of their being able to improve. Instead of one of the same medicine invariably proving either most hopeful or most dangerous in some cases, be it severity or gentleness, or any of the others which we have enumerated, in some cases it proves good and useful, in others, again, it has the contrary effect, according, I suppose, to the time and circumstance and the disposition of the patient. Now, to set before you the distinction between all these things, and to give you a perfect, exact overview of them, so that you may, in brief, comprehend the medical art, it is quite impossible, even for one qualified <laughs> in the highest degree of care and skill, but they become clear by actual experience and practice. Like, how are you going to know this in one one way? is experience. It's probably the only way really to know and uh, practice. You can't learn this stuff in the books. I know whose servants we are and where we are placed and whither we are guides. I know the height of God and the weakness of man and on the contrary, his power. The commission is the commission to guide and govern souls is too high for me, and this is why I tried to flee the office. Um, And this is not unusual. Um, So, so if if Gregory uh, he gets kind of compelled to to become a pastor under his father first, and then in other places, um, part of the thing that makes him not want to do it is because it's hard. And and like who's 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 up for this? He's like, oh, it's this too high. He says it's too high for me, um, which I think probably most pastors would say. Um, that, yeah, who who can do this right? It's, I I <laughs> you know to know the difference, to know when to say the right thing at the right time, to know when to be harsh, when to be soft, when to be encouraging, when to be you know rebuking. Um, Yeah, who's who's going to know? No one's going to do it perfectly. Uh, But, top of the next page, still the last last part of this. But God in his goodness rewards our trust in him and makes a perfect ruler for the pastor, makes a perfect ruler of the man who has confidence in him and places all his hopes in him. So the thing, the key he sees is that he would trust. In in, in God, probably, you know, um, not that he's always going to do the right thing or that he's going to know the right thing, but his confidence is in is in the Lord. It's not in you know him doing the right thing or making the right you know treating people in the right even handing out the right medicine. Um, uh, but his trust is in God, which is good considering he said when he says, "I know whose servants we are." it's that "I know who I answer to," <laughs> and I'm concerned about this. I want to do this right. Um, but it's just, this is a this is a yeah. So um, the next one deals with his time in this. I don't even know much about Sasama, but this is how he describes it in his um, De vita sua. This is a poem that's it's a two thousand line poem, uh, like autobiographical. This, this is how he he writes his biography. His autobiography is in this form of this poem. And this is one of the lines in it. Utterly dreadful, pokey little hole. A paltry horse stop on the main road. Devoid of water, vegetation, or the company of gentlemen. This was my church of Sassima. So, um, you know, he, he, see, he sees this town and this, this like, you know, <laughs> paltry horse stop on the, on the way. You know, do you suppose? Do you suppose pastors might ever think about the place that they serve as a, uh, you know, for better or for worse? Like you know, one of one of the congregations or one of the one of the towns uh, that that I have the call to is like Wood Lake's four times bigger, <laughs> just about. <laughs> um, you have, but at the same time, like. A, I know, uh, CFW Walther, kind of one of the leaders, the initial leaders of, of Lutheranism here in America. Uh, in his, I think it was his where he said that a pastor should should be able to say of the place where he's serving as uh, I don't know the exact wording he goes, but like as the most the most glorious place um, ever. Uh, and I can I can really that's that's the usual way, at least publicly, that the, that the pastors are and ought to. They view the place where they, have, they are called to serve as, I you know, where, where else would I be? Where else would I want to be? Um, uh, at the same time, <laughs> you know, they, you had that, um, some of you that we had read through the, the book, um, The Hammer of God. And it describes that young young curate out fresh out of the university, the seminary. You know, looking at this as his year in in, in this place that he was called to serve as. This was his Siberia. You know, feels like it's on the middle of nowhere. Um, But all right, so that's Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, Yeah, he does become, and this is this is uh, he's hesitant to do this to become the the bishop of of uh, Constantinople. Before this, I don't think he would have wanted this job either, but um, it's uh, a little story. Gregory's homilies were well received. We, he was one referred to as the orator. Um, his homilies were well received and attracted ever growing crowds to Anastasia, the town that he was serving there. Um, fearing his popularity, his opponents decided to strike. On the eve of, of the Vigil of Easter in 379, so we do the Easter Vigil. 379. that's what they were doing. So it's the night before Easter. In the middle of that, imagine this happening at our Easter vigil. An Aryan mob burst into his church during the worship services, wounding Gregory and killing another bishop. So we, I think we're probably pretty safe. Um, uh, escaping the mob, Gregory found himself betrayed by his erstwhile friend, the philosopher Maximus the Cynic. Uh, Maximus, who was in secret alliance with Peter, the bishop of Alexandria, attempted to seize Gregory's position and gave him gave, have himself ordained bishop of Constantinople. So, in fighting for this position, like you would not want to get him replaced. Um, yeah, Pastor, did he have a family himself? I noticed his dad was a bishop, so obviously he was a son. But yeah, did he have? Because sometimes you think bishops of not being necessarily. Right, So in this early, early part of the church life, and we're going to see something interesting with the next two about their family. We know something more about them. But Gregory we don't know much about, um, and I, I don't think it's him. There's, there's one of them who is, is supposed to have a, have a wife, but I think it's not him. So I don't know that he did. But it, at this point, it was not forbidden for priests, pastors to be married bishops that many of them were, including one of the the following ones. Uh, But you notice his father was and had a family and so. But he wasn't, um, his father was married before he became a Christian, too. So I think there there did come a time, there's there's a transition where they didn't allow people to um, take a wife while they were a bishop or a presbyter. But if they had one, they didn't make them get rid of it, or they, they would still allow them to become priests. Um, but, uh, yeah, we don't, we don't know much about his family in particular, but we do about the next ones, that, and that's uh be something we'll want to talk about. He's sometimes referred to as the, known as the Trinitarian theologian. All three of these guys, so all of the, the controversies that we talked about with Arianism, Apollinarianism, later Nestorianism, um, they're all writing against this. So there's very much in the um, the world, you know, he comes after the Council of Nicaea, but I think he's at the Council of Constantinople in 381. That was 325, Nicaea, 325, Constantinople, 381. So he's, he's there with that one. Uh, so a lot of the writing, um, we didn't have any examples of that type of writing here, but... So then Gregory of Nyssa... Uh, he is from a Christian family. So a big family. There's a, it's either nine or ten children in this family. Um, his, one of his grandmothers was martyred in one of the persecutions. Another grandmother was, I think both of them were Christians. One of them was a mar- martyr. Um, the, the other, I think, that, that lived. And that, but then his father was also a... Uh, uh, Bishop or something—I can't remember that right now. Um, he there's not as much known about him, or he's kind of the the, the, the quieter of the three. Um, he doesn't is not as as influential or as popular. Um, whereas Gregory of Nazianzus was known as a preacher, um, and Gregory of Nest or Greg Basel the Great um, has is known widely. Uh, not so much Gregory. So one of his brothers is Basil. They had a sister named Macrina, uh, which I think is the same name as his grandma. So the, the grandmother, I believe, that survived was that Macrina. Macrina is also referred, in the Roman Catholic Church is referred to as a saint uh, for something else, and I don't know that whole story. But uh, but his sister also is. Um, The number of them that become bishops, so it's kind of in the family, but a big, a a fairly large family. And he becomes bishop in 372 in Nyssa, but he's, but he, he's like deposed and then he comes back. Um, He had that with Nazianzos too. Not that he got deposed, but he would leave, and he would like serve another place for a while, but then he'd always kind of come back to Nazianzos, and eventually he came back there to retire. Um, Which was that that whole thing about him fleeing the office, like. (laughs) Kind of didn't want to do it. (laughs) Um, Which I can imagine if you're doing church and, like, the the guy next to you gets murdered, um, that also might make you hesitate, too. You might want to just live out your life on the farm. (laughs) Um, He's... uh, Yeah, so um, in between that 372, like... So 372, he's put in place. Um, In 373, Amphilochios, bishop of Iconium, had to visit the city to quell the discontent with Gregory. In 375, Demosthenes of Pontus convened a synod to try Gregory on charges of embezzlement of church funds and irregular ordination of bishops. I don't know that any of that was true, but that's what the... uh, he was arrested by imperial troops in the winter of the same year but escaped to an unknown location. Um, the Synod of Nyssa, which was convened in the spring of 376, deposed him. However, Gregory gained his see in 378, perhaps due to an amnesty promulgated by the new emperor Gratian. Um, so, it was not, this was not easy <laughs> for even just to retain this, uh, this position as bishop. There, But let's look at, at some of the writings of, of, from Gregory. The first one we've had before, we saw this when we were talking about Arianism. Um, this quote, if you ask anyone in Constantinople for change, he'll start discussing you whether the son is begotten or unbegotten. Um, the point there is so like, you want to do small talk? You want to talk about the weather? And he's like, let's talk Christology. <laughs> like that, this is, the, this is the, the, the stuff going around on the street. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about the nature of Christ and his person, and all of these things on whether or not the Son is, the Father is greater, the Son is less. If you suggest taking a bath, you'll be told there was nothing before the Son was created. Um, his point was like this: is this is on people's minds in Constantinople, um, revealing that this this con- doctrinal controversy was had you know had to be wrestled with not just among the bishops and the clergy, but among the people. Yeah. Um, The next one from his catechetical oration, When God revealed himself, he united himself with our mortal nature in order to deify humanity through his close relation with deity. Since this is so, through his flesh, constituted by bread and wine, he implants himself in all believers. Uh, Wonderful. Describing the unity of the divine with the human in Christ. So Jesus takes on human flesh. United himself with our mortal nature in order to deify humanity. I said this last, I think last Sunday. What we celebrate in Christmas, in the incarnation, like this is way more than cute nativity story. Um, Like this has an impact on all of humanity. When Jesus tries to take, God himself takes on human flesh. I mean, this is what should knock our socks off that God would become one of us, that he would unite himself to humanity in such an, yeah, such an intimate way, by, in, in the person of Jesus. So not just, well, you know, humans, I like you. I love you. That's nice. It is quite another thing for God to say, I am going to become one of you. Yeah? And, and, and so then he draws the connection and says, um, since this is so, through his flesh... Jesus' human flesh, constituted by bread and wine, he implants himself in all believers. So he does one more. So first he takes on your flesh. He becomes one with you. And then he takes that flesh, dies, rises from the grave, and then wants to put that living flesh from the grave inside you. <laughs> you know? So, the, so the, 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 the divine comes in Jesus, and now Jesus comes into you. This is the connection from God to humanity, from humanity the human Jesus, through God, man, Jesus, down to you. Now that should knock our socks off every Sunday <laughs> that, we, that we get such a thing. Uh, then the next one. <clears throat> this is interesting. There is no question about that which is bred in the uterus, both growing and moving from place to place. It remains, therefore, that we must think that the point of commencement of existence is one and the same for body and soul. What's it talking about? The beginning of life. And I love that, that he says, there's no question about what is bred in the uterus. Back in the, the you know, whenever he read, wrote this in the th- 300s, it's like, there's no question about what this is. It's a baby, right? The thing that's growing and moving from place to place in the womb. We know what that is, right? That's one of us. And so he says that... <clears throat> means, therefore, that we must think the point of commencement of existence. When does that person exist, begin to exist? Now, part of the debate was whether or not the soul comes in at the same time. Does, like, the body form first, and then the soul kind of comes in at, a, at another point? And his answer is no. That the, the per, when the person exists, they are a person. And a person is body and soul um, united together um, and together. This is a living human being, which is amazing. Uh, they didn't have ultrasounds. You know, they when he points out when he said growing and and moving from place to place. a lot of when you look back, um, this is this is not a new like thing for people to to, to talk about and, and and determine when is a person a person. When you can't see the person, you don't even know, you know, a woman doesn't even know she's pregnant for a, a chunk of it, section of it. Um, and a lot of times they would, they would point it too quickly, they would call it. But basically when you feel the baby move, which I don't know, that changes. It's not always the same exactly. So when do you determine that? But that's just because that's when they could indicate that. So when he says, when you, I know when you got the baby who is growing and moving from place to place, you know that there's a baby there, right? Right. Um, so without any of that technology that we now have that we can see very, very early, and we know what happens inside. Um, just this is pretty, pretty clear. But it's, I think it's, it's kind of fun to see this, that this is not a new thing argument that Christians are making, that this, uh, this is a, a person. Yeah. And they were able to, without any, any of our advancement, scientific advancement or medical knowledge. They were able to see this and know this. Uh, The next one, uh, a sermon on the Beatitudes. It comes from. Are you are you not ashamed, you little clay doll, doll soon to be dust, blown up like a bubble with your own momentary puff full of pride all swollen with inflamed delusion and inflating your mind with empty conceit. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a preachment against uh, pride, right? <laughs> Do you not see at each, at each end the limits of life, of human life, how it begins and where it ends? So we just got done talking about how it begins. Is it, yet you glory in your youth. You look at, to the blossom of your fresh years and you boast of your full bloom because your hands are strong for lifting, your feet agile for jumping, your curls blow about in the wind. I like that little line. Is you know, imagine this young strapping this, uh, um, who's the guy, uh, Beauty and the Beast, the big, what's his name? Gaston? <laughs> you know, that's, that's how we feel when we're 22 or something like that. I don't know. Or, you know, we're... And, and maybe for a little while afterwards, you know, you've you, you got it. Yes, perhaps you even look even to your shoes, carefully polished with blacking and smart with extravagantly stitched lines, yet you do not look at yourself. You know, yeah. I'll show you your reflection, who you are, what you are. Have you not seen in the burial ground the mysteries of our existence? Have you not seen the heap of bones piled on each other, skulls stripped of flesh, fearing, staring fearsome and horrible from empty eye sockets? It's gross. Have you seen the grinning mouths and the rest of the limbs lying casually about? If you have seen those things, then in them you have seen yourself. What faint shadow so escapes our grasp as the dream of youth, no sooner appearing than instantly flown? So much for those who are foolish in their youth because they have not yet grown up. I mean, you kind of you know, maybe figured that the youth are, are inexperienced and they're immature. And so, of course, they're not going to, um, they're not going to understand that. They, they might be prideful. But he says, this, um, what might be said about those now of established maturity whose youth have gone, has gone, but their character is unstable and the disease of pride increases. Because one thing for the young to be proud, you know, he's proud and, that he's strong and he's, you know, uh, thinks he's invincible. But this doesn't necessarily go away. The pride doesn't necessarily go away. It's, it, it, it transitions from a physical pride in my physical uh, abilities, perhaps, and my youth to, what does it say? The name they give to this infirmity of character is dignity. As often as not imperial office and the exercise of its power become the excuse for pride. Those, however, who strut on the stage of life because of imperial office, so you've got an important position, you're pretty important. Uh, they stay no longer within the bounds of human nature, but assume divine power and authority. They believe they have sovereignty over life and death because some of those who are judged by them, they give the sentence of acquittal, while others they condemn to death. And they do not even consider who is truly the sovereign of human life and determines both the beginning of existence and it's like, you're, yes, you can sentence people to die or to, to remain alive, but you don't, yeah. Nevertheless, this alone should have been enough to restrain vain conceit. The sight of many rulers, even during the performance of their reign, snatched from their very thrones and carried out to their graves. And for them, lamentation has replaced the cries of the heralds. How then can he be sovereign over life which does not belong to him? When his own does not belong to him. Even that person, therefore, if he becomes poor in spirit, looking to the one who willingly became poor because of us, and observing the equal respect we owe to members of our race, will not inflict injury on those who share his origin as a result of that mistaken masquerade of government. So, warns against treating, you know, in pride, treating people, as if pretending like you didn't come from the same place, you know. Is it because you have this position, therefore you don't, yeah. That's Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, so, um, yeah, so then his brother is Basil. He's called Basil the Great. He's, it was the, he studied, so when, when um, Gregory of Nazianzus studied in, like, Athens... Uh, Gregory Nazianzus was there too, so they're kind of schoolmates. And then these brothers with Gregory Nyssa, and a lot of the things with Gregory Nyssa, he gets his positions because it, probably because of the influence of of his brother. Um, uh, he studied in Constantinople and Athens as well. Uh, he's, we're going to look at quotes about asceticism and monasticism. Asceticism um, is the practice of like giving things up, like a foregoing, denying oneself, as Jesus talks about. It was an, an effort to deny oneself of everything, so that, that shows up in monasticism, where people take vows of you know, celibacy, or um, chastity, or, or poverty, right? Uh, it's that idea, um, the monastic, the, the ascetic, is the idea of... Doing away with in order to, and we're going to see his quotes. He's talking about that. He writes about that, and he's he's not the, the only one. There was one. Um, There's Saint Anthony. This is earlier. Uh, Athanasius writes a description of uh, this man, this Saint Anthony, who you know, who gives up and he lives an ascetic life. Uh, they don't. You don't have monasteries yet at this point. And later on in churches, we're going to have a whole section where we're going to talk about the rise of monasticism. Um, and uh, so we'll save some of that, but he's an early, this is kind of what he does. Um, he does serve as a bishop of Caesarea, but he also, he's going to write about this living in community with other, other people. Um, one of the reasons that this takes off, I think, is, so remember in the previous eras during the, during the persecutions, what was kind of a, the, considered popularly as, like, the highest, like, the highest, if you were to rank Christians? The ones that were held in the highest esteem would be the people who gave up their lives, the confessors and the martyrs, right? These people were unwilling to give up the faith, even in the face of death. And they were kind of put up on a pedestal, and they were remembered for their faith, rightly, I think, that they would be honored and remembered, right? Their, their story and their stories told. Um, but when the persecution... So if you, so if you wanted to be, a, to, or to show yourself somehow, to be a... I don't know, maybe they talked like this. I don't know, like a real Christian or like, you know, real, showing real commitment. <clears throat> um, a person might fight against persecution at least, you know. And maybe they'd get martyred, maybe they wouldn't. Um, but that was kind of... When the persecutions go away... What takes the place of that? You know, how does someone who wants to, who sees that maybe other Christians aren't really, um, really living Christian lives, that sometimes happens? People who profess Christianity, not everyone, they, and people look around and say, these people go to church? Well, they don't act like it. And they want to act like it. So what do I do? So that, that, I think that's where it gives them something to do. They want to show their devotion to Christ so it's well-meant, I think, in, in a lot of ways. They want to show commitment to the faith. Um, and I think you can kind of see that in some of these early writings. We're, we're going to see that, and especially where it goes. We know where it goes in medieval monasticism. we say, this is not a good move necessarily, but maybe, I think what we want to do is see that it's probably well-meant, well-intended. And early on, you didn't, like I said, you didn't have mon- uh, monasteries. You didn't have these people living Together, they would have them living apart. So like um, the hermits, we, we'll talk about a hermit being someone that just kind of lives by themselves. A little hermit um, comes from the word for like the wilderness. They would they would go off and they would live in the wilderness by themselves. That even these people who would live up on these poles, it, like I don't know how, like kind of they cut off a tree and then they put a, like a tree house up there, and they would just live up there kind of separate from... and the, uh, in an effort to, to show their devotion or to devote themselves to prayer and fasting and things like that. All right. Um, actually, before we go, I'm going to tell... So there's one story about him. So remember we said that Basel, as the, the bishop, was kind of more, I don't know, in your face, aggressive. Um, there's a story about when... I think this is when he is already the bishop there. Emperor Valens, so the emperor was an adherent of the Arian philosophy. So he's. An, he's uh, an Arian sent his prefect Modestus to at least agree to a compromise with the Arian faction. So the emperor sends a, a messenger spokesman to the bishop and say, compromise with Arianism. Basel's adamant negative response prompted Modestus to say that no one had ever spoken to him in that way before. Basel replied, Perhaps you have never yet had to deal with a bishop. <laughs> Modestus reported back to Valens, the emperor, that he believed nothing short of violence would avail against Basil. Valens was unwilling, apparently unwilling to engage in violence. So like, He's not backing down. You're going to have to fight him. <laughs> he doesn't want to fight. He did issue orders banishing Basel repeatedly, none of which succeeded. So he, he decreed that Basel should be banished, but... They did, you know, it just didn't work, people wouldn't let him go. Um, Valens himself came to attend when Basel celebrated the divine liturgy on the Feast of the Theophany. That's Epiphany. So he comes to church on Epiphany, sees the liturgy, and at that time was so impressed by Basel that he donated to him some land for the building of the, uh, of the basilica. Um, and he was, he was converted by, by coming to it. So... Uh, but you're going to get a sense of he would, his not backing down sort of nature. But let's read about asceticism here. The first quote from the introduction to the ascetic life. Come then, soldier of Christ. So again, you know, like, so this is for the Christian who wants to be the, you know, the dedicated soldier who wants to do it. Set before yourself a life without house, homeland, or possessions. Be free and at liberty from all worldly cares, lest desire of a wife or anxiety for a child fetter you. This cannot have place in the celestial warfare. Bodily nature does not exercise dominion over you. Do not desire to leave behind you progeny upon earth, not to cleave to fleshly unions, but to strive after spiritual ones, to exercise power over souls and to beget sons in the spirit. Um, so, I mean, it does pick up on some things, you know, that Jesus talked about laying down on his cross, or anyone who's, who uh, would follow me must deny father and mother, must hate his, he just, must hate his father and mother and, and come after me. Um, and then you have the Apostle Paul who wasn't married, saying it's better not to marry, and, and, and because a man who's married has concerns of this life. And so it was like this extreme way of showing that they were really faithful, and they wanted to be a soldier for Christ, and so... The, of. Of instead of leaving behind children and, and uh, f- have spiritual um, sons, okay. Uh, then also, then this next one, uh, also from his ascetic works, the monastic life. So we um, talked about asceticism, monasticism. Simply, you know, monastis mono just means one or alone. So it's, it's living alone is the idea. Monastic life in a secluded and remote habitation contributes to the removal of distraction from the soul. So that was their goal. Removal of distraction from the soul. That we may not receive incitements to sin through our eyes and ears and become imperceptibly habituated to it. That the impress and the form, so to speak, of what is seen and heard uh, should not or not, may not remain in the soul for its ruin, and that we may be able to be constantly engaged in prayer. So you see, that's his goal, right? That we wouldn't be tempted to sin. So we would say, well, that's that's good, right? And is it possible? Is it possible, he says, to receive incitements um, to sin through our eyes and ears and become imperceptibly habituated to it? Is that possible for Christians? To, by seeing sin... And being around it so often that we, over, we become imperceptibly habituated to it. And we don't notice it anymore. I think that is possible for the for Christians. Yeah, so, so I think they diagnosed a problem, right? That that, that is real. Um, or that the, the, the seeing it may not remain in the soul for its ruin. Or that we may be constantly engaged in prayer. That we would want to be engaged in prayer. That's a good thing. Um, but what he concludes, we should before all things else... Seek to live in a retired place. In so doing, we should be able to overcome our former habits, whereby we lived as strangers to the teachings of Christ. And maybe that is a mistake: is thinking that if you just live alone, that you can that you can do this, as if the temptations to sin all came from the outside, <laughs> and that if you just lived alone, then you could avoid it. So there's a mistake, I think, um, in that in that reasoning. Um, uh, for it is impossible to gain proficiency in meditation and prayer while a multitude of distractions is dragging the soul about and introducing into it anxieties about the affairs of this life. And is that true, in a sense? I mean, is it true that Jesus talks about that? Um, the sower and the seed. The, the one, that, which one is that? The fellow among the weeds? Is that where the, the cares and anxieties of this life choked it out? Isn't it true that the business of life can threaten to choke out the practice of prayer. And absolutely, Jesus warns us against that. And so there's, again, a problem that they, that they indicate. Um, it's a, 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 impossible to proficient, gain proficiency. Well, I don't know. if it's, Is it impossible? Or do we just have to know what the dangers are? Um, could anyone immersed in these cares ever fulfill that command? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And so they're saying, well, can, can we... Um, remain in the world, and still we, we must deny ourselves, Jesus said. And so their their idea of the way to do that is to remove yourself from society, from other people, and do this do this alone. Um, but the, well, <laughs> since it is dangerous to live in company with those who hold the commandments of God in light regard, and I, I think that's that's worth noting, because I, I think that's true. Would you agree? It, it is dangerous to live in company with those who hold the commandments of God in like regard. Well, if, if we were impervious to temptation, I suppose, if we live among people, no one else treats, treats the commands of God as serious. That is a danger to us. That is because of temptation around us. Right? Right? I mean, yeah, we could say, like, it. we should not let it. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you, when, you, when you warn kids about bad company. You know, bad company corrupts morals. Um, that. That depend on age to a degree. That to a degree. Yeah, sure. Someone who's got. You know, uh, and, and a mature Christian may be able to, perhaps. Um you know, like may, Mission would be working this stuff like that. Right, and you would you would have to go in and be among people who like in order to But in a mission though you're not gonna be there for thirty years. You're going there for a certain amount of time, so yeah, you could go into a place like and you hope that it you, you can make some change, but if you're living there constantly, and for you kinda you could become you kind of incorporate it. And the same, well, one thing too, like, yeah, like, talking about your missions or things like that, you would maybe send someone in to go into a, a, a corrupt place. Uh, you probably wouldn't send your children there, though. So I think that's a, <laughs> there's, there's some yeah, The opposite of that in the previous paragraph is being alone, you're not able to be amongst people who either, so that being alone to avoid everything isn't helping And people. And he's, I mean, he's going he's gonna to observe that in the next paragraph to, to a degree, is that this is, just being entirely alone is not a solution, because it's missing something else, right? Um, but I think just, just that we would observe. Dangerous to live in company with those who hold the commandments of God. We should know that. Right? If we, if we are, you know, and by living in company with, they're constantly around me. If, and and you can sort of sense that sometimes, but a lot of times you don't, that's part of the problem. Is you don't sense it, you know. Do you you ever notice? I don't know. You you notice being around people that talk, and it it could be the certain kind of language that they use. If you're with them enough, you will start to use that kind of language. Uh, I mean, we could say maybe you shouldn't, but maybe it's not even talking about like, Bad language. I mean, if you, if you spend enough time with someone who talks with a certain accent, with a lot of people that talk to you, if you move south for 40 years, now they'll still recognize you as from Minnesota. Yeah. Because you still talk, you'll still, for, for quite a while, but you will pick up on some of their their language patterns, because that's what you're hearing and that's what you, it becomes. So, so we recognize that, again, the problem. Uh, we consider it logical to inquire next whether one retires from society should live in solitude with brothers who are of the same mind and who have set before themselves the same goal, that is, the devout life. Um, so the question is, do you live alone or do you live with people, but, but a people of, of, of like mind? And his answer is, we should live with a people of like mind. Um, he doesn't get into the dangers of actually living alone necessarily, but I consider the life passed in company with a person, number of persons in the same habituation, habitation as more advantageous in many respects. My reasons are first, that no one of us is self-sufficient as regards bodily necessities. So you're going to starve if you're all by yourself, right? If you're totally alone. Um, but we require another's, one another's aid in supplying our needs. If we live together, we can help each other in the physical things. So we need each other. One foot, the foot possesses one kind of power and lacks another, and without the cooperation of the other members of the body, finds itself incapable of carrying on its activity independent for any length of time, nor does it have the wherewithal to supply what is lacking. Similarly, in the solitary life, what is at hand becomes useless to us, and what is wanting cannot be provided, since God the Creator decreed that we should require the help of one another. And that's, a, that's a kind of a key thing there. God, the creator, decreed that we should require the help of one another. God made us to live in community. We are, we are social beings. God made us to need each other. Um, so he gets that. Again, apart from this consideration, the doctrine of the charity of Christ does not permit the individual to be concerned solely with his own private interests. So Jesus says love one another so you have a responsibility to other people so you can't just totally ignore them, right? You can't just leave. But a life passed in solitude is concerned only with the private service of individual needs. Uh, Furthermore, a person living in solitary retirement will not readily perceive his own defects, since he has no one to admonish and correct him with mildness and compassion. In fact, admonition, even from an enemy, often produces in a prudent man the desire for amendment. Moreover, the majority of the commandments are easily observed in several persons living together, but not so in the case of one living alone. You can't keep the commandments if you don't have anyone to love. (laughs) Um, For while he is obeying one commandment, the practice of another is being interfered with. For example, when he's visiting the sick, he cannot show hospitality to the stranger. Community life offers more blessings than can be fully and easily enumerated. It is more advantageous than the solitary life, both for... Preserving the goods bestowed on us by God and for warding off the external attacks of the enemy. Um, so, so, so the problem is living with living with temptation, living in the, the, the busyness of the world to, to retire to solitary life, but in community with like minded brothers. So because we need people, we need other people. I think what what is the thing that he misses? I think he's out of a big one. God in creation did not create us merely to need other people in kind of generic. How did God, how did God create us to need each other? Who does He create first? Adam. Who's the next? What, what, why does He create anything else? Be, so they would not be alone. So, the, how does God create? So, he, he, God knows that we are not to be alone. So, what does He do? What does He create? He creates, the, the order that he creates is this structure for us needing each other and providing for the needs of each other. So the needs that Adam has are perfectly co- completed in the creation of a woman. Um, and then the, the further need that they, the two of them have, are formed in the children that, that God gives to them, um, that the, the family is, I would say, so the community that he's searching for I think God's already provided it. Which is what Luther's later on, you know, over a thousand years later, is going to pick up on. And he's saying, and one of his uh, objections is in order to become a monk, he had to disobey his father. God had already given him the order uh, for community and loving one another um, and living out the faith. Now, will members of the family always be um, of like mind? Maybe not. But that is, that is the order that God has God has given um, and I think that's something that they miss and that's going to then have effects for the next thousand years and longer um, this kind of downgrading of marriage the interesting thing for Basil the Great is that like, he comes from a large family and like, so he's going to do this and um, I, although I, I forget one of the two one of them is married If think it's possible we're out of time So we'll have to pick this up because there's some uh, really interesting quotes here on the next one. Shall we close then? God's word is our great here.